0: This morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. So you can begin to turn and tap your way there, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Let me uh, me begin just by reading this passage for us, and then we will walk through it uh, a bit at a time. Paul writes, he says, According to the grace given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Hey, let me uh, let me offer a couple of words that are going to be helpful, going to be instructive, kind of keep our minds from running towards the collective ditch of misinterpretation. One of the things that I think we're tempted to do when we come into this passage is to overly personalize and kind of look at ourselves and say, This is what it's like for me to kind of go through this life and what it's like for me to basically make it into heaven by the skin of my teeth. That's not what Paul is talking about. That's not what he's addressing. He's in no sense in no fashion addressing salvation in terms of kind of being purified or making it out and, and the ability or good idea of buying into fire insurance. That's just not happening. That's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, if you look immediately prior to this, who's Paul addressing? He says, back in verse 5, What then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, through the Lord it's assigned to each. So he goes through and he's been talking primarily about church leadership. And so what we see in 10 through 15 is a direct address to all those who would seek to be pastors, to all those who would seek to be leaders. And he's addressing and establishing how they lead, how they're evaluated. How they lead and how they're evaluated. Because in essence, the argument Paul is making is that since... Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. We have to take care with how we build upon it and how we are built upon it. So since Jesus Christ is the foundation, we have to take great care at how we approach church and how we consider church. Look at how he begins this. He says, according to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So Paul looks at it in this very real way of saying, effectively, God has moved in my life. He has given me this commission to move and operate in your church. Now, Paul has uh, an extended uh, relationship with the church there in Corinth. He planted that church. He was there for a year and a half, and it's been four or five years since he was there. But he views his relationship with them as one of a gracious beginning. God commissioned, he gave to Paul this challenge to work there in Corinth, to work with these believers there. And he's operated within that realm. He hasn't sought to be more than, uh, than he is. He hasn't sought to grow uh, their own opinion of him. He has operated solely according to the grace God has given him. But look how he begins to describe it. He says, like a skilled master builder. Now, if you have kids and you've watched the Lego movie, then the idea of a master builder—some of you apparently do—a uh, master builder really conjures this idea that they could take a street lamp and turn it into a race car. Man, they could take uh, anything and turn it into something absolutely amazing. They can transfer, transform the mundane into the fantastic, and so that's kind of where our minds go if we have kids. If not, you're just looking at it and thinking how very incredibly expensive it is to have a master builder construct anything for you, and most of us end up with some type of no-talent hack who knows how to use a telephone and call subs to do the real work. But Paul describes himself as a master builder, In essence, he's saying that as this thing was erected, as the church was constructed, I was intimately involved in every facet of the ministry, in every facet of the job. He's involving and investing himself in the lives of people. He's involving and investing himself in the lives of those of the community. Why? Because that's what God has called him to do to be intimately involved and invested in his people's lives and to be intimately involved and invested in ensuring the fidelity of their building upon the correct foundation. Look what he says, I laid a foundation. Now Paul has told us over and again what exactly the foundation is, what exactly uh, the totality of his communication with the, those in Corinth has been. You know, so if you look back at chapter 1, he said in verse 23, he said, but we preach Christ crucified like this is it they wanted him to come in and wow them with uh eloquence they wanted him to come in and just really blow them away with some type of newfangled idea and paul says man we preach christ crucified and so there are those in the community that say christ crucified like that's a really offensive message And so Paul enters into it. He says, yeah, of course it's an offensive message because we recognize that it is a stumbling block to Jews. And so they look at it and they say, we have this cultural heritage. We have this understanding that won't let us approach a crucified Messiah. And he says, okay, but we preach Christ crucified. And then he turns to the Gentiles and they say, it's it's just absolute stupidity that God would come in flesh, that this leader would die, that he would suffer. And we just can't believe this. He says, "We, we can preach none other. We preach Christ crucified. Don't you have a more palatable? Don't you have a more relevant? Don't you have a more contemporary message? He says, no, we preach one message. We preach Christ crucified. So that's the foundation of it. The the gospel that he's laying down that says, look, that God has created all things, that humanity rebelled against God, that God sent Jesus to redeem and rescue humanity, and he calls upon us to respond to him. This is what Paul preaches. And this is what he utters over and over and over again. So imagine that you have a friend who has some obnoxious hobby. Uh, they sell oils, right? And so, I don't know, maybe that's not obnoxious to you. But, and so they do that, but every conversation they have, they turn towards that. And so you're like, I have a headache. I've got an oil for that. I've got a wart on my foot. I've got an oil for that. My car won't sweat. They make oil for that, right? And so they have all these various things. And so every conversation, they're naturally turning back that way. You you have a baby who's just born and you manage to turn every conversation back towards that. If tax day. Hallelujah! had a baby who's just born. You know, child tax credit. You know, whatever. So you're turning things back this way. Everything Paul is leveraging for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the foundation. He knows no other. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he's building and basing everything on. He gets into chapter 2 and verse 2 and he says it again. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling look what he says. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he's weak. There's no bravado. There's no sense of really just wowing people with how incredibly impressive he is in person. Why? Because he's preaching something that doesn't accord with what they consider to be wisdom. It's his only message. It's his continual message. And it is the message that brings life. But look at what he goes on to say. I laid this foundation, Christ crucified, but now someone else is building upon it. The great hope for Christianity, the great hope for any church, is not that you and I would do well and grow something good, great, and amazing. But the great hope of of Christianity, the great hope for any church, is that a group of people would buy into the gospel that they would be transformed and they would pour into future generations so that they might be transformed, so they'd pour into future generations so that they might be transformed. And so if we buy into and say that, Man, my absolute preference is this. It's, it's this type of music. My absolute preference is this. It's this style of dress. My absolute preference is this. It's this time of, of us meeting. My absolute preference is this. It's a 58 and a half minute sermon. My absolute preference is this. No sermon. My absolute preference is whatever and we begin to kind of build upon our absolute preferences and say, this is what I want, then what we'll find is that a generation will follow us that does not hold to the same preferences we do, and then we will disband and we'll be no more and we won't be effective. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only foundation there is. It's what we have to build upon. And so our practices will change, the way it looks will change, but the foundation cannot, should not, must not change. Because if it does, we may have swelling numbers, we may have tremendous uh, groupings of people that come together, but we're certainly not building a church. See, Paul writes, he says, someone else is building on the work that I did. Have you ever had a job where you just poured your heart and soul into it and you made it work and you, you rescued it? And then some absolute idiot, buffoon, comes along behind you and they destroy it seemingly overnight without even breaking a sweat? It's incredibly frustrating. When I worked at Southwestern Seminary, I was given an apartment that was losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. They had no real understanding of what to do. So we came in, we evaluated, we fired some people. We combined some positions. We cut down on the products we offered. And we began to kind of turn it around and we looked at it and we said, you know what? We've really worked quite hard at this and we're doing really well. Then a couple of years later, I come to Ridgecrest and I, and I look back and i can to see all these decisions i made being undone. And at first I was charitable and I thought, well, this is okay. This isn't such a big deal. But then they went after some things I really cared about. And they began to make what I thought were bad decisions. And I thought, oh, I need to write a strongly worded letter. Oh, I need to call somebody. I need to tell somebody. Why? Because I think they are ruining this. They're destroying this. And so I didn't have great charity. I didn't have great thoughts and great fondness for the people who came after me. But I can tell you that in every role you serve in life, in every church, in every relationship, someone will follow you. So your role and responsibility is to steward well the time you have. To steward well the, time, the, the finances you have, the talent you have. And to actively involve and invest yourself. Get plugged in. Do something with the time that you are here. Stop merely being a consumer and invest yourself for the purpose of not making it better now, but for making it better for the people that follow you. That's where we begin to see difference take place. Paul says, I laid this foundation and someone else is building upon it. And I'm telling you, when he wrote this, he rejoiced that there were other people continuing in the labor and the endeavor that he began. And so he tells us, he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it he's primarily talking to the leadership in essence saying look i laid this thing down but every one of you that follows me needs to take care how he builds upon it you need to evaluate what you're doing and ask yourself the continual question of am i being true to the foundation am i being true to the gospel or have i abandoned it for other pursuits now why why does he have to take care of how he builds upon it does it matter Aren't we primarily a people concerned with results? And so if we were to do something and and the masses were to come to our church, if we were to do something and we were to to be really impactful and really well-known, isn't that primarily what we're concerned with? Isn't that primarily what we're concerned with? Somebody should throw something and say, no, you idiot. That's not what we're primarily concerned with. But so oftentimes that is our behavior. That is our mindset. But the first question many of us ask when we endeavor to do something is will it work and how effective will it be? Will it work and how effective will it be? Not, is it true to the gospel? And is it in fact what God is calling us to? See, the reason that each one has to take care of how, is how he builds upon it is given to us in verse Verse 11. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Any church that doesn't have as its foundation Jesus Christ is a church you should not attend. It's not a real church. It may be a social club. It may be a place where people come and sing, where they hear challenging teaching. And it may be people coming in mass. It may be the only church people know of. But if you can't readily discern Jesus Christ as its foundation, then, friend, it is not a church. And the same thing could happen at any church. Any church that moves away from recognizing Jesus Christ as its foundation has abandoned Orthodox Christianity. It, it, It has absolutely abandoned Orthodox Christianity. And why do we see this? Recognize what Paul did was lay this foundation, but he laid the foundation given to him. Paul didn't sit around and say, I wonder what the most abstract, amazing message I can communicate to them is. Oh, I know what it is it's Jesus Christ. Paul took the gospel, and he let the gospel be the plan and purposes of God for the people of Corinth. And this is what every church is. This is rather, this is what every church should be. We're not seeking to establish some new and novel concept. We're not seeking to be incredibly compelling. We're seeking to exalt Jesus. And we're seeking to do that through the only personalities that he has given us. And for some of us, our personalities aren't great. Thank you for not laughing. Now, look at what he says here. In verse 12 it gets really, I think it's difficult in some sense. He says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation, and look at the four resources he gives, or look at the resources. He says, with gold, with silver, with precious stones, with wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become manifest. And so he goes in, and he's not moving from most valuable to least valuable. He's not pairing them. There's no secret message hidden in there. In essence, what he's talking about are those things that endure and those things that pass away. You've got some things that endure. You've got some things that pass away. And so the message then, if you're looking at leaders, if you're looking at pastors, if you're looking at elders, they need to be doing things that matter for eternity, not doing things that impress for today. There are things you can do. You can get people all kind of wrapped up and emotionally driven to do things. You can sway their emotions by employing rhetoric, by being involved and presenting yourself and presenting the gospel in a certain way, and you're doing these things, but to do that is to illegitimize the gospel, to not seek to be reliant upon the Holy Spirit, but instead to be reliant upon yourself and your strength and your eloquence, your ability and your personality. But what he talks about is using and building those things that endure, those things that last. In some sense, in terms of leadership, he is asking these questions. Are you working hard? Are you working hard? Are you just coasting? Or are you just doing enough to get by? Are you resting truly upon God and being directed by him? Are you doing just enough to get by or just enough that people don't notice your inadequacies? Now, this is a difficult and really, frankly, an odd thing to preach to you. That, that one of the things for pastors to do is to use those things that are enduring, that their labor needs to be hard. Now, some of you really excel at making it hard, but that their labor needs to be hard. They need to endeavor daily to do these things. They cannot be lazy. They can't merely seek to do those things that are pragmatically uh, good, that would bring about the results that people would look at and say, you know, he, she, they're doing a great job. Look at at the things that have happened. You cannot base whether or not I'm doing a good job upon the results that are evident to you through your eyes. And so this is incredibly overwhelming. That in some sense, you should be evaluating your leadership and saying, are they doing things that lend themselves to having enduring worth and quality? Are we just spinning our wheels and just continuing down the same road we've been on for so many years? It's just tough. But in the same sense, if you look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, let's flip over there quickly. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, speaking of God, he said, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, for what purpose? Verse 12, to equip the saints, you, congregants, people of the church, to equip you for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, to what end, until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so you begin to kind of see how things work. And so what God has given to the church are its pastors, or its leaders, or its shepherds? For what purpose? To build up the congregants, to pour into you the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. Why? So that you would build the church into being this glorious vessel for the gospel of Jesus. So that when people see the church, they'd be unable to see anything other than the gospel of Jesus. Now many times when people look at the church, what they see is a terrific amount of infighting and people who have nothing better to do on a Sunday morning than to gather in uncomfortable chairs. But what they should see in a church is a body poised and ready at community transformation. A body poised and ready to pour itself out, seeking to be of the benefit of all those we encounter. And so if you think of it in terms of that primarily what the leaders in the church are working with is the raw material found in their congregants, then what it begins to spur in our minds is, what type of material am I? What type of material am I? And I can tell you that no small number of you think that you are gold, you are silver, and you are precious stones. You've seen the help far too many times. And so you think that you are these, these enduring qualities. Oh, I'm just I'm gold, and, and every opinion I share is gold, and every preference I have is silver, and every adornment I wear is precious stone. That's maybe 20% of you. That's maybe 20% of any church. Why? Because the overwhelming number of people that attend any church really just want to sit back and consume. I want things to go well, but I don't want to have to do too much to accomplish that. I want the budget to be healthy, but I don't want to have to give too much to make it be healthy. I'm praying God would bless someone else, and they would give over an increase. I'm praying we would be unified, but really unified around my opinion. I'm praying that we would have more of a one-hour service instead of a a one-and-a-half. I think that's a better thing to do. We tend to see from our own perspective that we are the ones who are valuable, and everybody else is expendable. We're the ones who are valuable, and everybody else is expendable. But the upper call of maturity in Christ would see us all move from being wood, hay, and straw to be gold, to be silver, and to be precious stones so that we would be useful for his kingdom. This is a hard message for us to hear because each of us don't like to be wrong. Each of us only want to do what? Our fair share of the work. If each of us are only doing our fair share of the work, then we've got a radical problem. We have a radical problem because each of us are self-defining what our fair share of the work is, and we want it to be irreducibly small, right? We don't want it to be able to get any smaller, but we want to be seen as being incredibly significant. I want to do this much work. I want to be seen as having accomplished this much stuff out here. This kind of blows for us. This is not fun. This is unpleasant for us. But in reality, this is what the vast number of churches, and we're not considerably different from this. This stinks. This stinks. To boil this down in, in, in just kind of this base deal, this is a major bummer for us. So how do we move? How do we move from being those things that, man, we're just here whenever it works with our schedule. If we don't have something better, if our kids don't have a sporting event, if, if, we, if we've not slept in and, and we don't have something better to do, and i would just tell you, the fact that you're here on Time Change Sunday says something about you, Right? It's amazing. You sacrificed an hour last night to be here. Or rather, somebody sacrificed an hour on the altar of something, and you're here this morning begrudgingly, now wondering if you would have been better off to stay at home. Look what Paul says, or look what the author of Hebrews says. I don't actually think it's Paul. Flip over to Hebrews uh, chapter 13. Let's start there. Hebrews 13, 17, I think this is tough for us. How do you become useful? You obey your leaders and you submit to them. How do you become useful? You obey your leaders and submit to them. At some point in your lives, you're going to engage in egregious sin if you don't stay faithful to the gospel. You're going to choose to step out on your wife. You're going to choose to step out on your husband. You're going to walk away from the faith. You're going to go to college and you're going to bail. We're going to go to you. We're going to talk to you because people have talked to us and they're going to say, oh my goodness, do you know that so-and-so left his wife? Do you know so-and-so left her husband? Do you know that so-and-so walked away from the faith? So we're going to go to you and say, oh my goodness, we've heard this horrible thing. Please tell us it's not true. We're going to open the scripture and we're going to say, Do you you see your life in accordance with scripture? We're imploring people to come back to the gospel. I think that's what he's talking about when he's talking about obeying and submission. I don't think he's saying, Everybody stand up and you stand. Everybody sit down and you sit. Everybody spend your money this way and you do. Why do I think that? Look at what he goes on to say. He's talking about spiritual development. Why should you obey and why should you submit? for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I am absolutely aware when I wake up in the morning that someday I'm going to have to give an account of how I related to you, how I encouraged you in the gospel, how I discouraged you from walking into sin, and how I begged you to walk back from the brink of ruining your life and the lives of everybody around you. This is what I'm going to have to do. And there are mornings I wake up, and I would honestly just rather not engage. Some of the lives of the people in our church are so incredibly messed up that I have no idea which way is up. Like it just seems like you have five bad decisions, and I'm trying to help you pick the one that is, is you know, least bad. Doing the absolute best we can. Why? Because there's a big bonus awaiting at the end of the year. No, I met with the administrative team and I tried to tie like, getting you to move out of sin to financial benefit. And then I realized that's probably a bad way to pair that. (laughs) Because I can make a bad decision and and then I think the thing would probably have to go the other way. If you make bad decisions, they take money away. Who wants that? (laughs) I don't know. We want to see you not make bad decisions. I want to see you be faithful to the gospel. I wake up each morning, praying that you be faithful to the gospel. I go to bed each night, praying that you be faithful to the gospel. This foundation that we rest upon, and this terrific sadness is that we are unable to contain sin within this body, within anybody. We want to be actively involved in your life. I want to help you walk up out of sin. And so, what does it look like to obey, and what does it look like to submit? looks like you're seeking to honor Jesus in your relationships as you relate to the leadership of the church. We are only ever ruled by one person in this church or any church. We are ruled by Jesus. Amen? We are ruled by Jesus. We are led by the elders. We are governed by the congregation. That does not change. Now look at the the really to share this promise that you have. I just want to keep looking at this here in Hebrews 13. You can have leaders who make bad decisions. They can call you to do things that are just repugnant and awful, and some of you have experienced that. For that, I apologize. I hope that was not uh, as a direct result of me being involved in your life. But he says, they're going to keep watch over your souls that those who have to give an account, and look what he goes on to say, is let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Rumor in a church, strife in a church, kills the hope and joy of those in leadership. It kills the hope and joy of the people in the body, and it is a cancer to any church. If you're working to to tear down ideas, how much better would it be if you turned around and said, man, let me be actively involved in making this a wonderful place where we can be phenomenally impactful for the lost people of our community and the people who are hurting in our body. Amen? This is what he calls us to. Quit being a curmudgeon. That role is already filled. You're wondering if uh, I've written in the back of your Bible, curmudgeon. Your job is next month. Hebrews 10. So what does it look like then? If that's kind of this idea of of we need to submit, we need to work well together. What does it look like? Hebrews 10.23. I just want to look at two or three things here. This is this terrific kind of let us language. Starting in 19, says, Therefore, brothers, since we have this great confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, because the blood of Jesus, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, has cleansed you, has made you holy and new, you're able to approach God. This is terrific news for all of us. We can be forgiven our sins because of the blood of Jesus. His blood was shed. We can boldly approach the throne of God. Look where he starts in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised us is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession. Stay true to the gospel. There are countless opportunities in your life to be unfaithful to the gospel. Innumerable temptations will come your way that will seek to entice you to doing those things that are immediately beneficial and pleasurable. Stay true to the gospel. Hold fast the confession. Why? Because he is faithful to you. 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. I love this verse. What does it look like for a bunch of people to approach God together and do so in the confidence of the blood of Jesus? It looks like all of us intimately being involved in the lives of one another. Doing what? Seeking to stir one another up. Man, I want to be a, a proponent of positive change in your life, and that should be the course of all of us, that each of us is so incredibly involved in the lives of everybody else in this church, not because we want to know everybody's gossip and, and be able to spread it around, but because I want to see the best come out of Janie. I want to see the best come out of Scott. I want to see the best come out of Caleb. I want to see the best come out of Cassie. I want to see the best come out of Jim. I want to see the best come out of Matt. And how do I do that? I do that by being an agent for positive change in his life, calling him to live in constant fidelity to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not pointing out sin in his life, but reminding him of the radical love that God has for him in the person of Jesus, the one whom his life is built upon the foundation of. I want to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. Now, how do we do that? Verse 25 goes on and says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. If you are not continual in your attendance and involvement of any church, maybe you're just passing through town. But being a part of a community requires your constant involvement. Requires your constant involvement. You should miss it when you're not here. Our numbers are getting such that it's hard to recognize whether or not we're missing you on a Sunday morning. And so it requires each of us to drive ourselves to involvement. Not being merely content to be the people on the fringe and on the fray, but to be all those who are vital and necessary. Why? So that you can be pouring into the lives of those around you. And that requires your presence, that requires your dedication, and that requires your sacrifice. Let us consider how we might stir one another up to loving good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. If you're a single person, it is easy to get yourself here. If you add a spouse to that, it begins to get difficult because now both of you have to be strong at the same time. If you have kids. Those little boogers get sick at unprecedented rates, right? And then they want stuff. And then you add siblings to that, and they have sports. And we begin to ask the question, are we worshiping at the altar of sports and their future athletic success and their, their shoe endorsement? Are we worshiping Jesus on a Sunday morning? Are we worshiping Jesus on a Wednesday night? Are we worshiping Jesus in the community of faith where he has us? You can do a whole series on the the ridiculousness of how we pursue sports in our kids, but lucky for you, I don't do thematic (laughs) preaching. And he calls us to sacrifice and be together. And it is a sacrifice, we will lose out, we will miss stuff. Our kids will not have some of the same experiences of those around us. We ourselves will not have some of the same experiences. Why? Because we take a radically different approach to retirement. What do we look at retirement as? I no longer have to clock in from 8 to 5. I'm free to serve Jesus all day long. This is what retirement is for the Christian. I'm now free to be used for the gospel all day long instead of going to L3. I'm now free to serve the gospel all day long instead of seeing patience. I'm now free to serve the gospel all day long because my kids are out of the house. I'm now free to serve the gospel all day long because I don't have all these various things pulling on me. This is what it is for the Christian. This is how we move from being wood, hay, and straw to being gold, to being silver, to being precious stones. And I want you to know something. In some sense, you could come here every Sunday and you could be engaged in every relationship and you could absolutely fake it and be good at it. People could think, man, he, she, they are the most amazing person I've ever met. I just, man, I just want to spend more time with them. No, they don't want to spend more time with you because they're faking it and they can only do that for so long. But we have bad news for the fakers. Look what he says. He says, each one's work will become manifest for the day it will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. God is going to test all the work of every church leader ever. So Joel Osteen will stand up before the judgment seat of God and the fire will be subjected to his work. I will stand up before the judgment seat of God and the fire will be subjected to my work. And that fire will reveal whether or not I've been building with wood, with hay, and with straw, or if I've been using gold and silver and precious stones. It's not for me to look at that and say, this is, this is how this is working. But it is to me to dedicate myself to only build with those things that have value and enduring value. What does it look like for us to move you and to disciple you and grow you to being enduring and valuable? Looks like personal investment, looks like you being vulnerable and available. We want fat people, faithful, available, and teachable people. Why? <laughs> yeah, you're like, whoa, hold on now. This is a Baptist church. We don't talk about gluttony or any of those things. Can we change the welcome sign? Looking for fat people. Sorry about that. It sounded much better uh, in here. Out of here, he laughed and I recognized. Incredibly offensive. We want skinny people. We want serious, knowledgeable. Oh, that starts with an E. Never mind. All right. Everything we ever do, everything any of us is ever engaged in will be shown for what it really is when we stand before God. This isn't a statement to terrify us. This is a statement to encourage us. There is no reason for us to be inauthentic. There is no reason for us to be fake. God knows what's at your heart. He knows what's driving you. He knows your motivations. He loves you, desires to spend time with you, desires that you would be useful for the expansion of his kingdom let's look at 14 and 15 as we close paul writes he says if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he'll receive reward and if anyone's work is burned up he'll suffer loss though he himself will be saved but is only through fire this is why i said this has nothing to do with salvation but he does talk about a reward and so i want to end with this what should we be working for what should we be striving for Jesus gives us this wonderful parable in Matthew 25. He says in Matthew 25, there was like a man going on a journey who called his servants in and he trusted to them his property. So he goes to the first servant and he says, let me give to you five talents. And he goes to the second servant and he says, let me give to you two talents. And talent is a a measure of, of, uh, it's a monetary unit. He goes to the next one and he says, let me give to you one unit. So you've got the five, you've got the two, and you've got the one. So the guy goes off on a journey. He goes away. And then he comes back and he begins to reconcile accounts with the servants. And so he goes to the first servant and this guy's been given five talents. He goes to him and the servant comes out and he meets his master and he says, I took your five talents and I invested them and I made five more. So he's he's doubled it. He goes to to the second guy and he says, how did you do? And he said, you gave me two and and so I invested it, and I doubled it, and, and, and now you have four. And he goes to the last guy, and he says, and how did you do it? He said, look, I know you're harsh. I know you're overbearing, so I buried it. I didn't want you to lose anything, and here you go. Here it is back again. In each one of these, they give us a picture of what it looks like for us to invest ourselves. It's not so that we could, would double our investment, but we work for God's good pleasure, And he invites us in. The one that had the five and the one that had the two, they received the same word from the master. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little and I'll set you over much. Listen to this. Enter the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I'll make you over much enter in to the joy of your master. God has set before us great joy only to be experienced and enjoyed with him. And he bids absolutely each one of us to come and to step in and to experience God's joy as we build upon the foundation of the gospel, as we build upon Jesus' life Jesus, with our lives, entrusting ourselves to him, we are moving towards glorifying our God daily, but we're moving towards ultimately stepping in to the joy of our master. You see, since Jesus is the church, and we are his body, he himself the head, take incredible care to how we engage with the church how we build upon the church, not seeking to receive a reward as would be recognized by those in our neighborhoods and our communities, but setting before our hearts and our minds a question for which we will not turn back. We long to experience his joy. We long to step into his joy and experience his embrace for eternity. Would you pray with me? God, there are so many things competing for our allegiance, competing for our affections. God, you pray that you would help us to be found faithful. You have saved us by grace. You have transformed us by your love. You have moved us from darkness to light, from death to life. I pray that each one of us, every man, woman, and child who has submitted themselves to Jesus would daily ask themselves the question, how am I building upon the foundation of Jesus? How am I building upon the foundation of Jesus? I pray that we would be driven over the course of our lives to be able to step into your joy, to experience you, to know you, to see you face to face. Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to Jesus. Been living good lives or recognized as good people. But they have never been forgiven. They have never been redeemed. And I pray that you would convict them of sin. And that you would call them to experience the forgiveness found in your gospel. Found in the blood of Jesus. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.